Section 9 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botes. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn. Rossiter Johnson and John Rudd. The Condemnation and Death of Socrates, B.C. 399, by Plato. Part 1. The death of Socrates was brought about under the restored democracy by three of his enemies, Lycon, Meletus, and Anitus, the last a man of high rank and reputation in the state. Socrates was accused by them of despising the ancient gods of the state, introducing new divinities and corrupting the youth of Athens. He was charged with having taught his followers, young men of the first Athenian families, to despise the established government, to be turbulent and seditious, and his accusers pointed to Alcibiades and Critias, notorious for their lawlessness, as examples of the fruits of his teaching. It is quite certain that Socrates disliked the Athenian government, and considered democracy as tyrannical as despotism. But there was no law at Athens by which he could be put to death for his words and actions and the vague charge could never have been made unless the whole trial of the philosopher had been a party movement headed by men like Lycon and Anitus, whose support of the unjust measure made the condemnation of Socrates a foregone conclusion. Xenophon, the pupil and admirer of the philosopher, expresses in his memorabilia of Socrates his surprise that the Athenians should have condemned to death a man of such exalted character and transparent innocence. But the influence of the teacher with his pupils, most of them sons of the wealthiest citizens, might well have been dreaded by those in office and engaged in the conduct of public business. By them, the common politicians of the day, Socrates, with his keen and witty criticism of political corruption and demagogism, must have been considered a formidable adversary. Accordingly, by the decision of the Athenian court, the philosopher was sentenced to death by drinking a cup of hemlock. Although it was usual for criminals to be executed the day following their condemnation, he enjoyed a respite of thirty days, during which time his friends had access to his prison cell. It was the time when the ceremonial galley was crowned and sent on her pilgrimage to the Holy Isle of Delos, and no criminal could be executed until her return. Socrates exhibited heroic constancy and cheerfulness during this interval, and repudiated the offers of his friends to aid in his escape, though they had chartered the ship to carry him to Thessaly. With calm composure, 
he reasoned on the immortality of the soul, and cheered his visitors with words of hope. The literary portraits of Socrates, furnished by himself, and the writings of Plato, are among the most precious monuments of antiquity, and the life and death of such a man form a memorable era in the moral and intellectual history of mankind. Plato, in his Phaedo, or The Immortality of the Soul, gives the following dialogue between Echecrates and Phaedo. Two friends and disciples of the late philosopher, evidently with no other purpose in view, then to lend to the account of the great teacher's last hours, and the last words his followers were to hear from his lips, the additional force and dramatic value of a personal narrative in the mouth of a loving pupil and an actual eyewitness of his death. Echecrates, were you personally present, Phaedo, with Socrates on that day when he drank the poison in prison, or did you hear an account of it from someone else? Phaedo, I was there myself, Echecrates. Echecrates, what then did he say before his death, and how did he die? For I should be glad to hear, for scarcely any citizen of Phlius ever visits Athens now, nor has any stranger for a long time come from thence, who was able to give us a clear account of the particulars, except that he died from drinking poison but he was unable to tell us anything more. Phaedo. And did you not hear about the trial, how it went off? Echecrates. Yes, someone told me this, and I wondered that it took place so long ago, he appears to have died long afterward. What was the reason of this, Phaedo? Phaedo. An accidental circumstance happened in his favor, Echecrates. For the poop of the ship, which the Athenians sent to Delos, chanced to be crowned on the day before the trial. Echecrates. But what is this ship? Phaedo. It is the ship, as the Athenians say, in which Theseus formerly conveyed the fourteen boys and girls to Crete, and saved both them and himself. They, therefore, made a vow to Apollo on that occasion, as it is said, that if they were saved, they would every year dispatch a solemn embassy to Delos, which from that time to the present they send yearly to the god. When they begin the preparations for this solemn embassy, they have a law, that the city shall be purified during this period, and that no public executions shall take place until the ship has reached Delos and returned to Athens. And this occasionally takes a long time, when the winds happen to impede their passage. The commencement of the embassy is when the priest of Apollo has crowned the poop of the ship, and this was done, as I said, on the day before the trial. On this account, Socrates had a long interval in prison between the trial and his death. 
Echecrates, and what, Phaedo, were the circumstances of his death, what was said and done, and who of his friends were with him, or would not the magistrates allow them to be present, but did he die destitute of friends? Phaedo, by no means, but some, indeed several, were present. Echecrates, take the trouble, then, to relate to me all the particulars, as clearly as you can, unless you have any pressing business. Phaedo, I am at leisure, and will endeavor to give you a full account, for to call Socrates to mind, whether speaking myself or listening to someone else, is always most delightful to me. Echecrates, and indeed, Phaedo, you have others to listen to you, who are of the same mind. However, endeavor to relate everything as accurately as you can. Phaedo. I was indeed wonderfully affected by being present, for I was not impressed with a feeling of pity, like one present at the death of a friend. For the man appeared to me to be happy, Echecrates, both from his manner and discourse. So fearlessly and nobly did he meet his death, so much so that it occurred to me that in going to Hades he was not going without a divine destiny, but that when he arrived there he would be happy, if anyone ever was. For this reason I was entirely uninfluenced by any feeling of pity, as would seem likely to be the case with one present on so mournful an occasion, nor was I affected by pleasure from being engaged in philosophical discussions, as was our custom, for our conversation was of that kind. But an altogether unaccountable feeling possessed me, a kind of unusual mixture compounded of pleasure and pain together when I considered that he was immediately about to die. And all of us who were present were affected in much the same manner, at one time laughing, at another weeping, one of us especially, Apollodorus, for you know the man and his manner. Echecrates, how should I not? Phaedo, he then was entirely overcome by these emotions, and I too was troubled, as well as the others. Echecrates. But who were present, Phaedo? Phaedo. Of his fellow countrymen, this Apollodorus was present, and Critobulus and his father Crito. Moreover, Hermogenes, Epigenes, Eschines and Antisthenes, Ctesippus the Pianian, Menexenus and some other of his countrymen were also there. Plato, I think, was sick. Echecrates, were any strangers present? Phaedo, yes, Simias the Theban, Sebes and Phedondes, and from Megara, Euclides and Terpsion. Echecrates, but what, were not Aristippus and Cleombrotus present? Phaedo, no, 
for they were said to be at Aegina. Hecrates, was anyone else there? Phaedo, I think that these were nearly all who were present. Hecrates, well now, what do you say was the subject of conversation? Phaedo, I will endeavor to relate the whole to you from the beginning. On the preceding days, I and the others were constantly in the habit of visiting Socrates, meeting early in the morning at the courthouse where the trial took place, for it was near the prison. Here, then, we waited every day till the prison was opened, conversing with each other, for it was not opened very early. But as soon as it was opened, we went in to Socrates, and usually spent a day with him. On that occasion, however, we met earlier than usual, for on the preceding day, when we left the prison in the evening, we heard that the ship had arrived from Delos. We therefore urged each other to come as early as possible to the accustomed place. Accordingly we came, and the porter, who used to admit us coming out, told us to wait, and not to enter until he called us. For he said, The eleven are now freeing Socrates from his bonds, and announcing to him that he must die today. But in no long time he returned and bade us enter. When we entered we found Socrates just freed from his bonds, and Santipe, you know her, holding his little boy and sitting by him. As soon as Santipe saw us, she wept aloud and said such things as women usually do on such occasions, as, Socrates, your friends will now converse with you for the last time, and you with them. But Socrates, looking toward Crito, said, Crito, let someone take her home. Upon which some of Crito's attendants led her away, wailing and beating herself. But Socrates, sitting up in bed, drew up his leg and rubbed it with his hand, and as he rubbed it said, What an unaccountable thing, my friends, that seems to be which men call pleasure, and how wonderfully is it related toward that which appears to be its contrary, pain, in that they will not both be present to a man at the same time. Yet, if any one pursues and attains the one, he is almost always compelled to receive the other, as if they were both united together from one head. And it seems to me, he said, that if Aesop had observed this, he would have made a fable from it, how the deity, wishing to reconcile these warring principles, when he could not do so, united their heads together, and from hence whomsoever the one visits, the other attends immediately after, as appears to be the case with me, since I suffered pain in my leg before from the chain, but now pleasure seems to have succeeded. Hereupon Sebes, interrupting him, said, By Jupiter, Socrates, you have done well in reminding me. With respect to the poems which you made, by putting into meter those fables of Aesop and the hymn to Apollo, 
several other persons asked me, and especially Evanus recently, with what design you made them after you came here, whereas before you had never made any. If, therefore, you care at all that I should be able to answer Evanus when he asks me again, for I am sure he will do so, tell me what I must say to him. Tell him the truth, then, Sebes, he replied, that I did not make them from a wish to compete with him or his poems, for I knew that this would be no easy matter, but that I might discover the meaning of certain dreams and discharge my conscience. If this should happen to be the music which they have often ordered me to apply myself to, for they were to the following purport. Often in my past life the same dream visited me, appearing at different times in different forms, yet always saying the same thing. Socrates, it said, apply yourself to and practice music. And I formerly supposed that it exhorted and encouraged me to continue the pursuit I was engaged in, as those who cheer on racers, so that the dream encouraged me to continue the pursuit I was engaged in, namely to apply myself to music, since philosophy is the highest music, and I was devoted to it. But now, since my trial took place, and the festival of God retarded my death, it appeared to me that, if by any chance the dream so frequently enjoined me, to apply myself to popular music, I ought not to disobey it, but do so, for that it would be safer for me not to depart hence before I had discharged my conscience by making some poems in obedience to the dream. Thus, then I first of all composed a hymn to the God whose festival was present, and after the God Considering that a poet, if he means to be a poet, ought to make fables and not discourses, and knowing that I was not skilled in making fables, I therefore put into verse those fables of Aesop, which were at hand and were known to me, and which first occurred to me. Tell this then to Evanus, Sebes, and bid him farewell and, if he is wise, to follow me as soon as he can. But I depart as it seems today, for so the Athenians order. To this Simeas said, What is this, Socrates, which you exhort Evanus to do? For I often meet with him, and from what I know of him, I am pretty certain that he will not at all be willing to comply with your advice. What then, said he, is not Evanus a philosopher? To me he seems to be so, said Simeas. Then he will be willing, rejoined Socrates, and so will everyone who worthily engages in this study. Perhaps, indeed, he will not commit violence on himself, for that, they say, is not allowable. And as he said this, he let down his leg from the bed on the ground, and in this posture continued 
during the remainder of the discussion. Sebes then asked him, What do you mean, Socrates, by saying that it is not lawful to commit violence on oneself, but that a philosopher should be willing to follow one who is dying? What, Sebes, have not you and Simeas, who have conversed familiarly with Philolaus on this subject, heard? Nothing very clearly, Socrates. I, however, speak only from hearsay. What then I have heard, I have no scruple in telling. And perhaps it is most becoming for one who is about to travel there, to inquire and speculate about the journey thither, what kind we think it is. What else can one do in the interval before sunset? Why, then, Socrates, do they say that it is not allowable to kill oneself? For I, as you asked just now, have heard both Philolaus, when he lived with us, and several others say that it was not right to do this. But I never heard anything clear upon the subject from anyone. Then you should consider it attentively, said Socrates. For perhaps you may hear. Probably, however, it will appear wonderful to you, if this alone of all other things is an universal truth, and it never happens to a man, as is the case in all other things, that at some times and to some persons only it is better to die than to live, yet that these men for whom it is better to die this probably will appear wonderful to you, may not without impiety do this good to themselves, but must await another benefactor. Then Sebes, gently smiling, said, speaking in his own dialect, Jove be witness. And indeed, said Socrates, it would appear to be unreasonable, yet still perhaps it has some reason on its side. The maxim, indeed, given on this subject in the mystical doctrines, that we, men, are in a kind of prison, and that we ought not to free ourselves from it and escape, appears to me difficult to be understood, and not easy to penetrate. This, however, appears to me, Sebes, to be well said, that the gods take care of us, and that we, men, are one of their possessions. Does it not seem so to you? It does, replied Sebes. Therefore, said he, if one of your slaves were to kill himself without your having intimated that you wished him to die, should you not be angry with him, and should you not punish him if you could? Certainly, he replied. Perhaps then, in this point of view, it is not unreasonable to assert that a man ought not to kill himself before the deity lays him under a necessity of doing so, such as that now laid on me. This, indeed, said Sebes, appears to be probable. But what you said just now, Socrates, that philosophers should be very willing to die, appears to be an absurdity. 
if what we said just now is agreeable to reason, that it is God who takes care of us, and that we are his property. For that the wisest man should not be grieved at leaving that service in which they govern them, who are the best of all masters, namely the gods, is not consistent with reason. For surely he cannot think that he will take better care of himself when he has become free, but a foolish man might perhaps think thus, that he should fly from his master, and would not reflect that he ought not to fly from a good one, but should cling to him as much as possible, therefore he would fly against all reason. But a man of sense would desire to be constantly with one better than himself. Thus, Socrates, the contrary of what you just now said is likely to be the case, for it becomes the wise to be grieved at dying, but the foolish to rejoice. Socrates, on hearing this, appeared to me to be pleased with the pertinacity of Sebes, and looking toward us, said, Sebes, you see, always searches out arguments, and is not at all willing to admit at once anything one has said. Whereupon Simias replied, But indeed, Socrates, Sebes appears to me now to say something to the purpose. For with what design should men really wise fly from masters who are better than themselves, and so readily leave them? And Sebes appears to me to direct his argument against you, because you so easily endure to abandon both us and those good rulers, as you yourself confess, the gods. You speak justly, said Socrates, for I think you mean that I ought to make my defense to this charge, as if I were in a court of justice. Certainly, replied Simeas. Come then, said he. I will endeavor to defend myself more successfully before you than before the judges. For, he proceeded, Simeas and Sebes, if I did not think that I should go first of all among other deities, who are both wise and good, and next among men who have departed this life better than any here, I should be wrong in not grieving at death. But now be assured, I hope to go among good men, though I would not positively assert it, that, however, I shall go among gods who are perfectly good masters. Be assured, I can positively assert this, if I can, anything of this kind. So that, on this account, I am not so much troubled, but I entertain a good hope that something awaits those who die, and that, as was said long since, it will be far better for the good than the evil. What then, Socrates, said Simeas, would you go away keeping this persuasion to yourself, or would you impart it with us? For this good appears to me to be also common to us, and at the same time it will be an apology for you.
if you can persuade us to believe what you say. I will endeavor to do so, he said. But first, let us attend to Crito here, and see what it is he seems to have for some time wished to say. What else, Socrates? said Crito. But what he, who is to give you the poison, told me some time ago, that I should tell you to speak as little as possible. For he says that men become too much heated by speaking, and that nothing of this kind ought to interfere with the poison, and that, otherwise, those who did so were sometimes compelled to drink two or three times. To which Socrates replied, Let him alone, and let him attend to his own business and prepare to give it me twice, or, if occasion requires, even thrice. I was almost certain what you would say, answered Crito, but he has been some time pestering me. Never mind him, he rejoined. But now I wish to render an account to you, my judges, of the reason why a man who has really devoted his life to philosophy when he is about to die, appears to me, on good grounds, to have confidence, and to entertain a firm hope, that the greatest good will befall him in the other world, when he has departed this life. How, then, this comes to pass, Simias and Sebes, I will endeavor to explain. For as many as rightly apply themselves to philosophy, seem to have left all others in ignorance, that they aim at nothing else than to die and be dead. If this then is true, it would surely be absurd to be anxious about nothing else than this during their whole life. But when it arrives, to be grieved at what they have been long anxious about and aimed at, End of section 9. Recording by Mike Botez.